few weeks ago, you'll remember, we began this series on Easter called Help My Unbelief with the simple goal of looking at the scriptures and how it gives us a picture of what it looks like to navigate with doubt in your journey of faith. Now, this series isn't only just for those who consider themselves followers of Jesus. In fact, there are many who probably are on the fence on what they believe about Jesus and the Bible, everything they've heard about Jesus and the Bible. And so if that is you, this series is for you too. And as we've learned over the last couple weeks, uh, doubt in, you know, in Jesus has been a reality uh, really for 100% of the people. Did you know that? 100% of the people who have ever placed their faith in Jesus. And doubt is not only uh, something that is real and expected, but, you know, doubt is not only just a roadblock for pursuing faith in Jesus, it is an expected reality. That's something that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Last week, we talked about this idea that Jesus is not threatened by our doubt. In fact, Jesus meets us in our doubt. He is not far, but he is near And now that I see Emma here, I just have to say this. Uh, On Friday, we had our online community, and Emma said, I really like sassy Jesus. I'm like, sassy Jesus? What do you mean? You know, sassy Jesus, who's like, I don't care what you say. I'm not phased by it. So I was like, you know, that's the first time I ever heard Jesus called sassy. But let's roll with that, if that's what encourages you. So, sassy Jesus. Now, over the next two weeks, I want to attempt to try to address Two very common, and and I say this very specifically, I'm going to address, please don't think that as I talk, what you'll hear in these next 20 minutes or so that we have together, you're going to hear me talk with, it'll sound like confidence, but I hope that I catch myself and I speak with humility regarding these next couple things we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. Just forgive me, Uh, sometimes I'm just reading my notes and and then I, I sound more confident than I really should be. And I want to handle these next few subjects, these next couple weeks, uh, hopefully with some amount of humility. But I think it's something we should talk about because these are two very common roadblocks that I think exist for people when it comes to engaging in the journey of learning what it means to increasingly submit all of life to Jesus. And so as much as part of me would not want to talk about this I, I, think, I think it needs to be said. I think, I think some of you will go, oh, Phil, you missed the mark, and, and I don't want to miss the mark. So now, now I, I will say this. In the original order of things, today's talk was actually going to be next week. Um, I was going to talk this week about the idea, the, the, the idea of the people have around the Bible and, you know, how can it be trusted? And I was going to talk a little bit about that. And I actually am really excited. To, we'll talk about that next week. But I felt that in light of everything that is happening around us, uh, you know, we're a church here in Brooklyn Park. I, I don't think I need to say that much to explain what has been going on around us. I thought it would be helpful maybe to take some time to speak on what I was going to speak on next week because I think this, this has a lot to offer, or it could. Maybe that's being presumptuous. And really, I I would hope most of all that this topic would give us a chance to gain a biblical perspective. There's a lot of perspective out there. I'll I'll just admit that. But today, overtly, we're going to say, what, what does the scripture have to say? 
And specifically, what does it have to say on a very common question people who allow doubt to keep them from engaging in a life of faith have? What does it have to say? And so (laughs) now you're probably wondering, like, what's the question, right? What's the question? Well, here's the question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Innocent people, however you want to put it. Why do, in general, why do bad things happen? Now, before we look at the scriptures and how it addresses, I thought it might be helpful just for a moment to talk about this question. Uh, Maybe it's not helpful for you. It's just therapeutic for me. This question is really rooted in a more profound question, I think, that many of us have had at one time or another in our life, which is this. It's this question, if God loves us and truly wants the best for us, then why doesn't he take all the bad stuff away? Have you ever thought that? I, I thought, I've thought that. You know, if God really loves us and has the best for us, then why do we have to go through this? Why doesn't he just remove it? Why didn't he just stop it? Why didn't he just prevent it? Right? Have you thought that? I have. You know, over the past two months, I officiated a funeral of two friends of mine who passed away way too young. A few weeks ago, my father-in-law was here from Indiana to see a Parkinson's specialist. Not even a week ago, literally 4.1 miles from here, between the parking lot of a church and the entrance of an elementary school, an unarmed young black man was killed by a police officer. On Thursday, close friends of mine of a couple who call Clarity home said goodbye to their five-month-old baby who was battling life-threatening diseases. This is a serious question. I didn't mean to take us like right off the deep end right away, but hopefully you don't mind. I don't have much time. The question remains, why do bad things happen, right? And not to make a straw man of the people who have counter arguments regarding this, I think it should be said that there are some people who have, and I'll say this as respectfully as I can, a narrow view of God those people who maybe have a very narrow or incomplete view of God, they might state that somewhere in the Bible it says that God is all-powerful, which naturally leads to the logical conclusions that if God is all-powerful, that means he can do anything he wants to do because he's got all power, right? And so it would seem that he could prevent the sudden death of my friends. If God is all-powerful, he could have taken away my father-in-law's Parkinson's. If God is all-powerful, he could have prevented the killing of Dante White if he wanted to. If God was all-powerful, he could have saved that five-month-year-old from dying if he wanted to. And when you have this kind of incomplete scriptural understanding of God's as all-powerful, the logical conclusion you can come to is this. If God doesn't heal, it's because he doesn't want to. If God doesn't heal the Parkinson's, it's because maybe he doesn't want to. If he doesn't stop the killing, it's because God ultimately doesn't want to. And this line of thinking seems to indicate that, I know this sounds sacrilegious, but just roll with the logical thinking here. Because whether you, I know I'm surrounded by a lot of people who love and follow Jesus. And so as I'm saying this, some of you are going, that's not true. I know. But listen. I have friends that I love and neighbors that I love very dearly whose logical arguments bring them to this. And we just need to say it because they're actually pretty logical. Like if I were them, I would believe it too. 
And I think it just needs to be said, which is what? This line of thinking seems to indicate that God wants people to die and their loved ones to experience grief, that God wants my father-in-law to have Parkinson's, that he wants more violence, that he wants more pain, and that he wants more grief for us. And things even get more, un- get more complicated when you consider that the scripture teaches that God is good, right? And, and which stands to reason, it must be good that those you love die unexpectedly, that it's good that my father-in-law has Parkinson's, that it's good that an unarmed young man was killed by a police officer, that it's good that a five-month-year-old was born, was born with multiple diseases that eventually took her life? And if your mind takes you there, then the obvious question is this. Are we talking about God then? Or are we talking about the devil? Because if God in any sense of the word wills for so much bad to take place, then what do you need a devil for? In other words, suppose God is already controlling all of this stuff that's happening that we wish would go away. In that case, there's really nothing left for the devil to do except become a puppet on God's hand who becomes the fall guy for all the bad stuff that goes on. Good luck on trying to reconcile this type of thinking. This is just where my mind goes. If I wanted to do justice to the argument that people have against faith in God, because they ask if God is so loving, then why does he allow bad things to happen? Am I the only one who knows people who this this is their argument? Am I the only one? I, I, I know a lot of people. And I think it begs to respect that and mention it. When it comes to doubt in God, faith of the Bible, there probably isn't as paramount a question as why would a loving God let bad things happen? But, for those of you who've been wanting it, here's the but. One of the most important questions you can ask, I can ask, when asking any question about who God is and what he does and why he does what he does, is this question. It's very, very simple. Where are your get, where, well, I can't even say it. Mm. <laughs> where do you get your picture of God from? Like, where do you get your picture of God from? To cut right to the chase, I, let me ask it in this way, because <clears throat> sometimes questions sound a little nicer than just confronting. <laughs> Is it possible to create in your mind a picture of what you think God should be like based solely on your experiences or maybe a limited or incomplete understanding of what the scripture teaches who God is? Is it possible? Is it possible? If the answer is yes, it's possible to kind of have this made up, unbased, outside of your own personal experiences of what you think God is or limited information on, well, I remember I went to Sunday school when I was a kid and I think I heard this. And, uh, is it possible 
to carry those kind of assumptions? If the answer is yes, then let's just be honest that we eventually will run into a dilemma. Because when you take whatever that version of God that you know, that version that you've learned about, that you've heard about, and you lay it over events and people in our world, you begin to see incongruencies. Things don't line up. Like at best, if you're a follower of Jesus and you bring in some of these ideas, eventually things don't line up. If you're you're not tracking with me, for instance, when I take, there's that song that we sing. He's a good, good, what? He's who you are, right? Right. Good, good father. When I take God as a good father and I lay it over the millions of orphans in this world, that doesn't really line up, does it? When I take God as the provider, Jehovah Jireh, some of you know those phrases, and I lay it over the famines in our world, all of a sudden, God provider doesn't line up. Some of you are getting worried. You're like, I thought you said yeah, this is the butt section. I got little kids. They're going to not believe in Jesus. Hold on. <laughs> I think we, we, need to, we need to talk about this like at its fullest extent to do it justice. Because good news is not good news until you know the bad news. When I take God gives life to the fullest, right? Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the what? Fullest, right? When we say, when we believe that God is that kind of God, and I try to match it up with the child who dies at five months, it doesn't line up, does it? So, if this were me, I have a choice to make. I can pretend that there are no tornadoes, no earthquakes, no terrorists, no murder, no loss of life, no accidents, no diseases, and maintain my vision and idea of what God is. I could ignore realities and hold on to what I think God is. Or, to swing the other way, I can come to a more disturbing, but at least this one's a little bit more realistic conclusion that perhaps the version of God that I've trusted in doesn't really exist. Because when current reality conflicts with your view of God, you would, not be, you, you would be wise not to ignore current reality and instead ask the difficult but helpful question, who then is God? Who then is God? Now that's a good question to ask. If he's not the God who makes sure all kids get home safely, then who is this God? If he's not the God who opens up the heavens and allows food to drop to those who are starving, who is this God? If, because listen, when your view of God doesn't match up with your reality, perhaps you're trusting in a God who doesn't even exist. Today I want to help us wrestle with and try to understand why bad things happen to good people. And to do that, I really want to skim through the surface of the scriptures. Particularly, I want to start at the beginning in Genesis with what's really been communicated about this topic 
of who God is. Because before we answer the question, why does God do anything, we need to ask the question, who is God? In the beginning of the narrative of the gospel that we refer to as the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 tells us this, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. And then in verse 27, he said, so God created human beings in his, guess what, own image. There's a second time. And then verse 31, then God looked over all he had made, all that he had made. You've heard me say this before. He looked at it and then he said what? It is good. It was good. Now today, most people would agree that the earth is still beautiful, right? Maybe the Nepali coast of Hawaii. Anyone been there? Yeah. The mountain terrain of Kilimanjaro. The wilderness area of Minnesota's beloved Boundary Waters. Yeah. And when God created the earth, he had it just the way he wanted it. It was just the way, honestly, our hearts want it to be. It was beautiful. It was pain-free. It was trouble-free. It was worry-free. More importantly, the scripture communicates from the beginning that God is good because he makes that which is good, but also that God is love. And God is, as we see here in this first chapter of community, let us make human beings in our own image to be like us. God is community. And that we were created to share in God's goodness and share in God's love and share in God's community. So what's, what's the point I'm trying to make? The point is this. God created humanity for loving community. He, this was his original plan. And so then what happened? Why is there pain and suffering in the world? How did evil creep into the world? Why are there natural disasters? Why doesn't nature cooperate and do what it was created to do? Why do people not do what they were created to do? Love, not kill. You know, be generous, not be selfish. How is it that your kids and my kids, speaking of selfish, don't need to be taught how to be selfish? That's mine. Uh, No, that's really actually your mom and I's because we bought it. (laughs) My kids hate that, by the way. My room. No, uh, that's my room. More importantly, how is it that we, even if you're not someone who considers yourself a Christian, Listen, how do we know that things are not as they should be? Like, how, how do you know? Like, things aren't as they should be. How do you know that kids aren't supposed to die? That's universal. But why? People are not supposed to attack other people. That's kind of a universal thought. But why do they? Before we try to answer that question, I think it's important to also realize this truth. That God created humanity with free will that he doesn't revoke. Now, if you're a Bible nerd, I'm not making a statement regarding Calvinism versus Arminianism. It's another discussion, okay? Just flow with me here. But there is this truth that God created humanity with free will he does not revoke. Listen to what Genesis has to say. Verse 8 and 9 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And then skip to verse 15. It says, the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So simply put, and you might have studied this passage before, here we see a classic scenario where God gives a provision and then he gives a prohibition, right? Humanity cannot actually have free will unless humanity has the opportunity to choose against what God wants. Otherwise, there is not free will at all. It is just kind of a pre-programmed response to the way that God has wired us from the beginning. And, you know, we're no better than, like, the Borg from Star Trek. We are the Borg. You will be assimilated. Anyways, I'm a nerd, so if you didn't get that. Now, I realize that's not a very emotionally satisfying answer. I'll just admit that. Especially when it comes to the idea of trying to answer why is there evil in the world. But I think if you take that to heart, this reality that God created humanity with free will that he does not revoke, it does help us reconcile evil in the world with a good and powerful God. You see, at the risk of being oversimplistic, a way to illustrate this is by trying to answer the question, is God powerful enough to create a round triangle? Right, right, what? God cannot create a round triangle, not because he isn't powerful, but because by nature of what a triangle is, it cannot be round. So in order for it to be one thing, it cannot be another. Now, I've, I've taken this argument to its logical end, and I know some people are going to poke holes in it, but like just listen to the, the oversimplistic nature of this argument. Because in order for God to create a world where we live and exist in loving community, we have to have the ability to reject loving community without the fear of our free will being revoked. God does not revoke the free will of those who choose to do what is not Good. God does not revoke the free will of those who choose to not do what is good. Not because he's powerless to do so, but because of the kind of world he chose to create. So, recap real quick. God created humanity for love and community. Two, God created humanity with free will that he does not revoke. Last, but definitely not least, the most important thing to consider when trying to reconcile the question, why do bad things happen, I think, is something that Paul alludes to in his letter to the Christians in and around of a city called Ephesus when he writes this. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And for those of you who don't think in these terms, I know it sounds like I'm spouting something from an episode of Blade or whatever, you know. Um, and it's like, oh, evil places and dark places and this is kind of weird. Listen, this might be hard for some to handle, but if you want to know what the scripture teaches about understanding why bad things happen, the truth cannot be ignored or understated. The sin of humanity started with a war against 
heavenlies and the dark powers of this world. Sin started a war. Well, that seems a little harsh, Phil. Oh, are you one of those kind of pastors? Well, I bet you're going to say we're in the Lord's army too now, huh? Listen, here's what you know and what I know. Let's just, let's just talk plainly. For as long as humanity has chosen to use its free will to pursue the knowledge of good and evil, it has led to war. After war. After war. Because as finite human beings, we cannot handle judging what is good and evil. And because of this, there has never truly been peace in our world. Goodness gracious, even as la- yesterday. Like, I, I cannot judge good from evil, and I get grumpy, and I, I yell at my wife for no reason, because I just, I'm writing a sermon about really hard stuff, and I'm grumpy, okay? So I, even in my own life, I, I can't. She's like, why are you so on edge? Because this is a hard message, and I don't even want to preach it. Moreover, we have the knowledge of what could be and should be, but we are powerless to create it on our own. Like somehow we all know what could be and what should be, but we, we feel powerless, don't we? We cannot handle the knowledge of good and evil. That's, that's the truth. When you realize that, when you feel that feeling like I just, I feel powerless, I feel like nothing could be done. You, you want to know why? It's because there was this place called the Garden of Eden where we were told not to eat of the fruit and God said we cannot handle it. And so every single day we live with this powerlessness to seem to be able to reconcile the, the idea of good and evil and, and it's because sin started a war. This is what Paul meant when he wrote in his letter to the new Christians in and around the city of Rome in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, as sin entered the world through one man and the death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sin, you sin, I sin, we all sinned. We all scream for sin. I mean, you know, you scream, I scream, anyways. All of us are going to die one day. I don't know if you know that. And that is because when Adam sinned, sin entered into the world. Now, I believe in taking care of your body, obviously. Right? Kidding. But listen, no matter how much you work out, no matter how healthy you are, we are all going to die. Whether you sit on the couch all day watching reruns of Friends or The Office, or you're a marathon runner, or you log more gym hours than Dwayne The Rock Johnson, you cannot beat death. And you know why the story of Adam and Eve is such a compelling story? Because their story is your story, and it's my story. Every single one of us has struggled with the same struggle that Adam and Eve did. We were given free will, and we decided somewhere along the way, through our actions and our choices, that God's way couldn't be trusted. And so there must be a better way. And sin started a war in the world because it started a war in our hearts. We know that something bad got mixed into the DNA of the world, to put it plainly. And we see it evidenced in violence, selfishness, hatred, bitterness, anger, 
We see it in the harshness of this broken world we live in. And nothing about any of this points to the idea that God is somehow the architect of this blueprint where bad things happen to good people or innocent people. In fact, in light of what the scripture teaches, bad things happen to good people because we live in a broken world that is being ravaged by this war of sin. And if God chose to step in and revoke the free will of those who chose evil, then there is no longer a world where people can choose good and where people can choose love and where people can choose God. There is good news. (laughs) Two things. The person of Jesus fully expresses God's opposition to evil. Jesus is the answer to evil. And second, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of God's plan to bring eternal restoration to all of creation. So first, with the rest of the time I have left, what do I mean when I say the person of Jesus fully expresses God's opposition to evil This is what I mean. The scriptures affirm over and over and over again that there are not a lot of images of God. Instead, there's only one image of God, and that is Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. In John's gospel, Jesus literally said this, if you see me, you have seen the Father. His disciples like, we want to see the Father. Show us the Father. We just want to see him. Then we'll believe. And Jesus looks at them and goes, bro, if you saw me, you saw the Father. That's sassy Jesus, by the way. He also said this later in that same chapter. He goes, by the way, I am the only way to the Father. This means we don't have to go to any other place to find out about what God is like other than Jesus. That's good news. If you're someone who is committed to follow Jesus, you have to lock into this. God looks like Jesus. This is what Paul means when he wrote in Colossians 2, verses 8 through 9, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that, doesn't, that, that, that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. See, Paul, Paul is trying to help them understand Christ is what we need to understand who God is. And when we understand who God is, then we can have this hope of beginning to reconcile the questions that bother us all, like Why do bad things happen? For Christ lives, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So, in light of this conclusion that we can know what God is like by looking at Jesus, (laughs) let me ask this. How many times do we see Jesus in any way wavering? Or being involved in child kidnappings or human trafficking. Not none. How many people did, did, did Jesus afflict with Parkinson's? 
How many murders did, did Jesus condone? How many injustices was he in favor of? Was he in any sense willing to let any of these things that we think of happen? No. If Jesus is our picture of God, then what you need to understand is that when you read the life of Jesus in the four different accounts, get this, four different accounts of the eyewitnesses, uh, of, of, of the eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus, to those who interviewed the eyewitnesses, Jesus reveals a God who is clearly not on that side of things, the kind of God who would be willing to let bad things happen. This is not that Jesus. Jesus reveals a God who is actually doing quite the opposite, being quite the opposite. The God that Jesus revealed is a God that heals diseases. He doesn't cause them. He comes to liberate us, not put us into captivity. He comes to rejuvenate creation, not create, not afflict creation. He comes that we might have life and life to the fullness. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Kill and destroy. Now I sound like the dude from um, Kiel. That will kill. What is that from? Forged in fire. <laughs> Anyways, he's another Filipino. Anyways. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus comes to give life and life to the fullest. And in him is found the clearest and fullest expression of God. So if that is the picture of God revealed in Jesus, then the idea that evil that happens in the world is somehow part of God's master plan. I want to sh- shout this, but I remember I, I have to be, I'm trying to be gentle here. The, I- the idea that evil that happens in the world is somehow part of God's master plan In light of what we just, it's wrong. It's just wrong. Because if God looks like Jesus, then it can't be possible that God is behind all the evil in the world. This only means that it must be that, here's, here's the harder thing, because I think, I think we want to think we're, we're better than we are. Because if that's what we know about God, then it must be that humans with free will and, and for some of you, this is crazy, but for those of us who believe in, in God and, the, and, and that there's more to life than just what we see, that there are things in the spiritual, unseen world. This only means that humans with free will and those in the unseen spiritual realm actually can have an effect on the outcome of this world. Maybe this creation is not as black and white as some people think it is. So, is it all just a chance then? No. The Bible clearly teaches us that prayer is essential and that we can have an effect on the side of good when we pray. The Bible teaches that prayer can sometimes be the thing which, you know, causes intervention of the things that are are happening bad. And there's so many factors and variables that we may never know exactly how that works or why some prayers get answered and some don't. What we do know is this. The God revealed in Jesus is no less sovereign just because he has chosen to win the hearts of people and prove that he is on our side through the person of Jesus rather than exercise control, dominance, dictatorship over the events that happen in this world. Jesus proves that God is no less sovereign just because God doesn't do what we think he should do and just take over 
Now, I realize that this is a super complex. I started this in the beginning. I, I realize this is all very complex, right? And, and what I just said is probably not a very emotionally satisfying answer. But that's why there is one more thing that the scripture tells us about God. And really, this is the thing I think that makes, at least to me, it's, it's the most powerful truth. And it's the truth that we kicked off this series with on Easter Sunday. It's this, that the death and resurrection of Jesus brings eternal restoration. Like the death and resurrection of Jesus not only communicates that God is interested in restoring all of creation, which includes you and me, to as it was. God will not stand by and let this war rage on forever. That's good news. The scripture tells us that he is actually patient. Did you know that? God's patient. And he wants as many people as possible to choose love, choose grace, choose forgiveness. But at some point, God will renew and restore all things. Romans 5 tells us this. Yes, Adam's sin brings, one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. The sin in our lives puts us on the opposite side of God in this war that rages. But when Jesus came to earth, he set things right and provided a way for you and me to be part of God's family and to be made right in God's eyes. Jesus never promised that we would never experience difficulty in this world. What we are promised is that one day, one day, we will experience peace from the war that rages. Paul said it best in Romans 8, 18, he said, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to this present time. And we believers groan. Don't you groan? Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us for a foretaste of the future glory. Don't you groan in the realities of what's happening when you watch the news? Don't you groan for a foretaste of what God God has his, this glory for us. This, I mean, I, I get this, what Paul is saying. And he says this, we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies. Amen. He has promises. I want a new body. I want more hair and, you know, and, and six pack. I want that, right? Amen. We were given this hope. Listen, when we were saved, let me ask you, are you saved? Are you saved? Paul goes on in verse 35. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity 
are persecuted, hungry, destitute, or in danger, threatened with death, or have to wear a mask. Sorry, he didn't say that. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. As I invite our musicians to come back to close in one more time of worship, a song that will hopefully spur us to remember just how great this Jesus is. I want to remind all of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus that this is why we pray. This is why we hope. This is why we reach out in love to our community. This is why we gather. This is why we live out the grace and love of God because one day God will renew and restore all things and all things will be as they should be in the beginning. Good.